The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter number 13. And thank you to Pastor Smith and the church family for the wonderful accommodations. And it's always a privilege and a wonderful time for us to come and visit here at Berean Baptist Church. This morning we're going to look here at Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. And the issue here is responding to great tragedy. When great tragedy hits, hits our nation, hits our family, how are we to respond as believers when tragedy is allowed in God's providence into our life. Luke chapter 13, I'll read verses 1 through 9, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There were present at the season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, no, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Of those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish." He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to gather with your people, to pray, to come before your throne of grace and mercy in this time of need. Lord, open our hearts, our minds, give us ears to hear what you have to say by your spirit and through your word to us this morning. Help us, Father. That as we look into your word, we would grow in grace as believers, and we would also grow, Lord, in our love towards others, especially those that are lost and are on their way to eternal judgment, that you would give us, Lord, a genuine desire to see the lost saved, for the lost to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be honored and glorified. Bless the Sunday school hour, we ask in Christ's name, amen. All right. In our nation here, we know about tragedy, both on a personal level and a national level. It's hard to believe that it's been already close to over 16 years since September 11, 2001, in which our nation was shocked by a terrorist attack. Nineteen militants associated with the Islamic group Al-Qaeda hijacked four airliners. That morning of September 11th at 8.45, the first plane hit the North Tower, And then around 18 minutes later, the South Tower was hit by the second plane there in New York City. At 9.45, a third plane hit the Pentagon just outside of Washington, D.C., where 125 people were killed, including also the 64 passengers on the airline. 
The fourth plane crashed in a field in Pennsylvania where 45 people died. That day, that tragic day, over 3,000 people were killed that day. I remember that day very well, for on September 10th, I threw out my back. And so that morning, I wasn't going to work. I was just rolling around in the bed in pain. The alarm clock went off, and then I heard these words, America under attack. And then my eyes just opened up, and I'm just listening to the radio. And then I slowly crawled over to the television to turn it on to find out what was going on and just in utter disbelief as all these things were taking place in our nation. After that attack, people began to ask many questions on talk shows and many people who never wanted to talk about God all of a sudden began to talk about the Lord. People were asking questions like, who is to blame for what happened? Why did God allow it to happen? Why did the victims, what did they do to deserve Such a terrible death. That was a man-made disaster. On December 26, 2004, there was what we call a natural disaster. That was when a large tsunami hit the coasts of Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and India. And over 100,000 people were taken, their lives were taken on that tragic day. Again, people ask questions. Why did God allow this to happen? Why wasn't there any warning? What did the victims do to deserve such a terrible and tragic death? Whatever the cause, whether it's man-made or natural, people want someone to blame. People want to ask the question, why didn't God do something to stop this tragedy? Well, Jesus, here in our text, says something different that we ought to ask. In fact, it's a question that we need to ask that is quite surprising. When disaster strikes, we should consider our own inevitable demise. We need to consider our own eternal destiny. We too will die someday, and we need to be ready to meet our Maker. And unless we repent, we will certainly perish. So we need to ask the question as we see tragedies around us take place in our nation, do I have a right relationship to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? To the Jewish people of our Lord's time who come to question him here in Luke chapter 13, to the average Jewish person, they understood or believed wrongly that all terrible calamities were God's specific judgments because people were especially wicked. That is, because they're especially wicked, they die tragic and terrible deaths as a result of their sin. We see this, for example, in the life of Job. Job, who suffered much, who lost all of his animals, his oxen, his donkeys, his camels, all in one day. And not only did he lose all of his business in one day, and then he lost his seven sons and his three daughters. Their lives were tragically taken all in one day. If anyone ever suffered tragedy, it was Job, a righteous man. And then Bildad and his other three friends came to counsel him, and at first they did very well, because at first they said nothing. They just sat there and mourned with Job for several days. Until finally, Bildad speaks out and says in Job 8.4, If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away because of their transgression. In other words, your children died a tragic death because somehow they are especially evil and wicked and deserved the judgment of God. That's why they died that way. We see this type of wrong thinking, even in the lives of the disciples. As they're walking and they see a blind man in John chapter 9 and verse 1, 
Jesus passed by and he sees this blind man, this man who was born blind. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, teacher, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Now think about it. He was born blind. What did he do? Did he kick his mom too hard in the belly? I mean, what did he do to be born blind? Their, their theology was all wrong. They were thinking, here's a guy who was suffering more than average, therefore. He must have done something to, to, to suffer so greatly. He must have done something extra wicked to deserve the judgment of God. But the truth this morning is that all people are guilty sinners deserving of death. And everyone is living on borrowed time. No one deserves it. God withholds his judgment for a time because he is patient. Because he is merciful towards sinners, even to pagan Gentiles. But only those who come to him in true faith will experience God's blessing and forgiveness. Jesus rejected the faulty theology that views all calamity as God's special judgment on particularly wicked people. In the context here in Luke 12, Jesus had rebuked his crowd, specifically the religious leaders of his day. Because they could discern when bad weather was going to take place in the day. They could discern when they seen black clouds that it was going to be a storming day. They could discern the signs of the weather and accurately predict, but they could not discern the signs of the times. That the Messiah of Israel was standing right in front of them, and yet they were blinded to that reality. And then he gave an example of judgment that is coming and the need to be ready. He gave an example at the end of Luke 12 how a man who has a lawsuit going against him and he's on his way to court and he knows once he gets to court, he's going to lose his lawsuit. So if he is wise before that day of judgment, he will settle out of court. If he has the smarts, if he has the intelligence knowing that if I reach the day of judgment, if I reach the court, I'm going to lose. Therefore, he needs to make peace with his enemy before he arrives for that day of judgment. It is in that context our Lord speaks of judgment. Jesus was speaking to men who did not apply spiritual truth to themselves. They would look down upon others who suffered tragedy and calamity and say, they deserve it. And I, I'm doing pretty good because I'm really a great person. This warped thinking in the audience that our Lord is dealing with. Jesus twice drives home his application. Twice he says, I tell you, nay, except ye repent, you will all likewise perish. If you don't repent, you will soon face the judgment of God yourselves. Thus, rather than asking the question, why, when tragedy hits, Jesus says when great tragedy comes, we need to ask the question, what? What does this tragedy teach me in God's providence? And our Lord's answer is simple. We could summarize these verses with this statement. Tragedies should teach us that since death and judgment are imminent, they're going to happen, we need to be ready through true repentance. Jesus Christ could have used this occasion, because they come and ask him about Pontius Pilate, a political leader. Look at what Pilate did, and look at the people that he killed, expecting Jesus to comment. And he could have used this opportunity to speak just against Pontius Pilate and the Roman government. He could have used this situation to lead a protest against the government. 
He could have used this situation to start a political movement. Because the Jews certainly believed that the main problem was the Roman government. Our Lord understood something different. The main problem is the wickedness of the human heart, not the government. Jesus doesn't go into philosophical discussion about the problem of evil. Instead, our Lord takes this general topic and he speaks to the consciences of those in his audience that they need to be ready for tragedy. They need to be ready for their appointment with death. And the way to get ready is through genuine repentance of sin. And where there's genuine repentance of sin, there will also be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two types of tragedies are addressed here. Those caused by evil people and those that are caused by what we would say today, an accident. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see a terrible atrocity. How Pilate kills these men. And then we're going to move to a tragic accident of a tower that fell on some people and tragically they died by an accident. And then Jesus gives an illustration to drive home the point that since death is imminent, judgment is coming, you need to be ready. And the way to be ready is by having a genuine repentance towards God and a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look, first of all, number one, at a terrible atrocity, verses 1 through 3. Look with me at verse number 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Here Pontius Pilate, he's the fifth governor of the area known as Judea. Pilate, we know from history, was a prideful and arrogant and cynical man. And yet at the same time, very weak, very fickle, very easily given over to change. History records, for example, that he entered into Jerusalem carrying the banners, the poles with the display, the banners of pagan Rome with all of its symbols, knowing that the Jewish people would object to that, that they would consider that idolatry. Yet he didn't care. And his pride and his arrogance, he went there, and as a result of carrying these banners with his soldiers, the Jewish people protested. In fact, they even came to the point where they all laid down on the floor and said, if you don't remove these banners and kill us, we don't want Jerusalem with these pagan symbols, uh, flooded with these pagan symbols. And of course, he changed his mind, showing how fickle and unwise he was. The specific incident here that is mentioned in Luke 13 is of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. These Galileans may have been involved in some type of rebellious activity against the Romans. Somehow they are tracked by the Roman soldiers to the temple where they are going into the temple to offer sacrifice to God. The incident took place on temple grounds because this is the only place that Israel was allowed to make sacrifices to God according to the word of God. It may have happened at a Passover when large numbers of Galileans would come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. The ethical question was whether these poor Galileans, if these poor Galileans were worse sinners than all the others that were in the temple, why? Because they were the only ones that were slaughtered by the Roman government. Their bad theology led them to this dilemma. How about these Galileans, Jesus? Are they worse than all the other people that were in the temple? Because it was the Galileans, they and they only were slaughtered by the Roman soldiers. Interesting enough, 
They are there in the temple offering sacrifices in obedience to God's word. And yet, the audience assumes they must have done something, they must be especially evil if God brought judgment upon them. The Lord understood their thoughts and he replied, verse 2 and 3, And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, I tell you no. Now there are times in the Bible where God specifically brings judgment and tragedy upon someone because of their evil. I think of Herod and the book of Acts chapter 12, where he's giving an oration, he is speaking publicly. Josephus tells us he's dressed in a sparkling gown, so he sparkles as he's in the sunshine. And the people began to shout, this is not the voice of a man, but the voice of a god. I can see him now giving the Mussolini chin. (laughs) Just taking the praise. And the Bible then says that God smote him because he gave not God the glory. God that day, God killed him tragically because he took glory that belonged to God and he took it to himself. But the only reason we know that God specifically judged him and killed him that day, the only reason we know he did it because of his sin is because God told us in the Bible. God had not told us in the Bible, we would say Herod died like anybody else. The only reason we know he died as a specific act of God's judgment is because God has revealed that in his word to us. There are many other times when people die. The Bible doesn't give us a reason that they suffered tragedy. Jesus was not referring to the inevitable consequences of sin, but rather to catastrophic calamities, where tragedy falls without discrimination upon a large group of people. The Lord's point is that those who perish in such calamities are no worse sinners than those who survive. God allows sinners to live because he is compassionate, because he is gracious and merciful and patient towards sinners. God uses all calamities to remind all people that death will come and we need to be ready. Jesus says at the end of the second part of verse 3, But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That is, the way to get ready is by genuine repentance towards God. Sinners must have a radical, total change of mind with regards to their own sins. They must see sin not the way society sees it, as a mistake, as a slip-up, as an accident, but to see it for what it is, high treason against the God of heaven. To see it as utter rebellion against the sovereign God of heaven. Sinners must have a radical change of mind about their sin that always leads to a change of life. Men need to repent. It is a turning from sin, which always includes a turning to Christ in faith. As Spurgeon once said, repentance and faith are like Siamese twins. They're always together. You know, Siamese twins share one body, two heads. Bob and Joe. Whoever Joe is, there's Bob. Whoever Bob is, there's Joe. They're always connected to each other. And genuine repentance, saving repentance which God commands of sinners and God grants to sinners, always has faith to it. 
When there is a genuine turning from sin, it's not a turning from sin unto morality, it is a turning from sin and a turning by faith unto the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. This is not a new message for our Lord, because we know from Mark chapter 1, this is the very heart of the gospel message. This is the very, the very first message that dropped from the lips of our Lord when he said, Repent ye and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1. This is part of the great commission that Jesus gave to the church in Luke 24, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to all nations. This is what Paul preached in Acts 20. When he went testifying both unto the Jews and also to the Greeks, the Gentiles. Repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. As one minister in the 1600s by the name of Philip Henry said, Some people do not like to hear much about repentance, but I think it is so necessary that if I should die in the pulpit, I would wish to die preaching about repentance. And if I should die out of the pulpit, I would wish to die practicing it. Tragedy, tragedy is to teach us that since death and judgment are imminent, we need to be ready through true repentance. And our Lord uses that terrible atrocity to turn it on his audience and say, you need to be ready through true repentance. Secondly, in verses 4 through 5, our Lord addresses the issue of a tragic accident. A tragic accident. The people of Jerusalem, by the way, by way of background, the people of Jerusalem and Judea, Look down upon the Galileans as inferior, not as cultured as the people of Jerusalem. Verse 4. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? This referred to an incident involving the Galileans here. Siloam is a section of Jerusalem near the southeast corner of the city wall. Here is a large tower. And for whatever reason, it fell. And it killed 18 people in what we would call a tragic accident. Jesus specifically declared that they were not worse sinners. That is, they're not worse debtors for breaking God's law. Then all the other men in Jerusalem, it wasn't like, all right, here are Galileans, they're kind of backwards people, and so God kills them, and all the sophisticated people from Jerusalem, God let them live because they're better people. The second illustration reinforced the Lord's point, that natural calamity is not simply God's way of singling out specifically evil people for judgment. Death, unfortunately, happens to all. Tragedies come to all. Verse 5. I tell you, nay, no, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The greatest calamity is not to die by a tower falling on you, or to die swimming in the ocean as a shark comes and eats you, which my wife is scared of doing. That's why she doesn't want to go to the beach. It's not dying by getting eaten by a shark. The greatest tragedy is not dying in an airplane wreck. The greatest tragedy is to die under the preaching of the gospel when Christ is freely offered to you and you stay stubbornly in your sin without repenting and embracing Christ. That is the greatest tragedy. 
Most of the Jewish people were caught up in a works righteousness system that forced people to view themselves as somehow better than others. But the question is not, why did these people die? But the question the audience in Luke 13 should have asked, and men should ask today, is what right do you have to live? Since the wages of sin is death. And all men have rebelled against God, and all are worthy of the death penalty. None of us is sinless, so we better get prepared. It is always easier to talk about other people's death, isn't it? These men come to ask Jesus about other people's death. How about them, Lord? How about them? How about them? It's never, Lord, how about me? (laughs) What's going to happen to me? I'm a sinner. I deserve God's judgment. No, it's talking about others. Some people are uncomfortable talking about their own death. If you're cruising on the coast, down 101, you'll find a sign that says, uh, Hearst Castle. And the man, the billionaire who who left it there when he died was William Randolph Hearst. This billionaire whose castle can be still be seen and visited by people, this mansion that he left behind with all of his goods, one interesting thing about Mr. Hearst, he never allowed people around him to talk about death. He believed in the power of positive thinking. And though he allowed no one to talk about death, he still died. <laughs> he still died. I read of one preacher who asked his friend what the death rate was in his city. He replied, one apiece. (laughs) Then he added, people are dying who never died before. (laughs) Whether it be a terrible atrocity or a tragic accident, tragedies should teach us that since death and judgment are imminent, we need to be ready through true repentance towards God. Thirdly, our Lord gives a truthful illustration in verses 6 through 9. A truthful illustration. Verse 6. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after thou shalt cut it down. This is a simple, straightforward analogy here. That to any farming community, they would be familiar to it. In close connection with the preceding, the Lord Jesus Christ tells a parable about a fig tree. Interesting enough, Israel... One of the pictures given in places like the book of Isaiah is that of a fig tree. Israel is pictured as a, the Lord's fig tree. It's as if God is looking for fruit. Fruit on this fig tree and there is none. Just as our Lord has been looking at Israel, specifically for three years under the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, he is looking for spiritual fruit. That shows that they have received their Messiah, they have come to faith in their Messiah, and yet there is no fruit. The simplest understanding of this refers to the first three years of our Lord's public ministry. The thought of the passage is that the fig tree had been given sufficient time to produce fruit. If it ever was going to do so, it would do so now. 
If no fruit appears in three years, then it was reasonable to conclude there would never be any fruit. Because of its fruitfulness or fruitlessness, God orders it to be cut down. And yet there's a plea. A plea to grant it one more year. Grant the tree one more year for it can't bear fruit. And if not, at the end of this year, if there's no fruit still, may be cut down in judgment. Originally, I believe this applies to the nation of Israel, for Israel has been blessed with many things. Israel received continual blessings from God as the adoption as sons and the covenants and the giving of the law and temple service. All of these, these blessings poured from God unto the nation of Israel. God even sent a forerunner to come and preach to the nation, John the Baptist. I like John's name, John the Baptist. He's not John the non-denominational. He's John the Baptist. <laughs> Came and he preached, warning men to repent, to make ready the way of the coming of the Lord. He preached. He was a repentance preacher. And Israel was blessed by hearing this greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, and yet no fruit. Jesus comes unto them and does signs and wonders, preaches the word of God, even raises People from the dead, like Lazarus in John chapter 11. And yet, because of their hardened hearts, there was little hope that they would bear any fruit of genuine repentance. Today, those who fail to produce the spiritual fruit that accompanies salvation will be cut down in judgment. J.C. Ryle wrote many years ago, there is a plainer warning still in the passage for all unconverted professing Christians. There are many in every congregation who hear the gospel and who are literally hanging over the brink of the pit. They have lived for years in the best parts of God's vineyard, and yet they bore no fruit. They have heard the gospel preached faithfully for hundreds of Sundays and yet have never embraced it and taken up the cross and followed Christ. They do not perhaps run in open sin, but they do nothing for God's glory. There is nothing positive about their religion. Of each of these, the Lord of the vineyard might say well with truth. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Indeed, God was merciful to Israel to allow them to see and to hear the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, of John the Baptist, of the Apostles, but let us not forget, God is also merciful to us to give us the word of God in our language, to give us the preaching of his word, the, the free offer of the gospel. God has been merciful to us as God was in the days of Noah, as Noah spent 120 years building the ark and being a preacher of righteousness. God, with great patience, gave that generation time to repent. How much more today? God is gracious to men. And when tragedy hits, they should ask themselves, am I ready to meet my maker? Have I prepared myself for eternity through the way of true repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ? Why? Well, every one of us will either be punished justly in hell or we will be pardoned in Christ. Two options and two options only. And yet, under the gospel, men are offered Christ. Christ, who has bore the judgment for our sins on the cross of Calvary. It is Jehovah God in Isaiah 55, who pleads with backslidden Israel 
and with sinners even today by saying, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, that is repentance, and let him return unto the Lord faith. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What can we learn from calamities? We should ask the question, when death comes, am I ready? Since it is imminent, it is coming, am I ready? Have I been brought by the grace of God to repent and to embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord? For that's who he is. He is Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word and the necessity to respond to great tragedy. Father, whether it's within the family, within the church, and within our nation, when we witness tragedy, may we be personally ready through the way of genuine repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us, for we all of us here who know the Lord we also know people who are not ready, who are not ready to meet their appointment with you in eternity. Lord, may tragedies teach us that since death and judgment are imminent, that we would seek to have our acquaintances, our friends, our loved ones, that we, that we would seek to have them ready as we preach the gospel to them, urging them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may the truth of the gospel as believers, compel us to gospel obedience, to preach the gospel to every creature. For indeed, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Father, grant us boldness that we would witness in a day that sees much of calamity, much of death, and that with love we would urge men to flee to Christ, to repent and to believe the precious gospel, which is your power. Help us, Lord that we would learn from the tragedies around us the lessons that you've spoke, spoken so clearly here in Luke chapter number 13. May you be honored and glorified to the teaching of your word, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.